Vulture's Good One podcast is sponsored by HBO's Crashing. Starring Pete Holmes, the new comedy series premieres on Sunday, February 19th at 10.30 p.m. Co-created by Holmes and Judd Apatow, the show draws on their experience as comedians, offering a behind-the-scenes look at the unpredictable world of stand-up comedy. Guest stars include Artie Lang, T.J. Miller, Sarah Silverman, and Hannibal Burris. Again, HBO's Crashing premieres February 19th at 10.30 p.m. Take Good One, a podcast about jokes, please. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor Jesse David Fox. Our guest for episode three is the incomparable Kristen Schaal. One of the most innovative and original comedic voices of her generation, Schaal's best known for a number of standout TV roles from Flight of the Concords to Bob's Burgers to The Last Man on Earth. Schaal's also a tremendously unique stand-up comedian, opting for genre-pushing conceptual bits instead of set-up punchlines. In this episode, we'll hear one of those bits, Dancing Bird, which Shaw opened her Comedy Central Presents special with in 2009. The idea is Shaw has a singing and dancing bird who will act as her comedy partner for the rest of the show. The problem is, the bird's not there. The only thing you need to know, because it's a fairly visual bit, is when she unveils the cage, all she finds is a little baby bird note. Ladies and gentlemen, the next thing you'll hear is Kristen Shaw saying ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited to introduce a special guest on the show tonight. Um, I'm so surprised that he agreed to do it. I've been working with him um, since the early 70s, off and on. Uh, but anyways, uh, Kurt, could you bring him out, please? Thank you. <laughs> Kurt, um... Kurt's my comedy partner, and um, we both wanted to do the special, but because I'm more famous, they said just I could have a special, and, and Kurt could... Um, do the props. Yeah. So. Ah. Doing them pretty good. Doing yeah. pretty good. Big break for you. Big yeah. break. Yeah. All right. Okay, um, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, um, please put your hands together for my winging, singing, dancing bird! Hey! <laughs> oh no. I got the note. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you gotta go south. You gotta go south. So. <laughs> I'm doing it. Now. Not so good. <laughs> okay, well, do you think you can make it for the last? Hello? <sighs> um. 
Kurt. Kurt. What's um, up? What's up? The bird is gone. Oh, geez, that dude's unreliable. I don't know what I'm gonna do because the rest of my set was all with the bird. I was gonna be singing and dancing and gymnastics. I know what you can do. You can do the best one-woman show I've ever seen, and you're too afraid to perform. Oh, Kurt, I, uh, first of all, this is a comedy show, and uh -huh. that is an intense, gripping drama. So. Kristen, the world deserves your drama. Now give drama to the world! So I'm here with the person behind that joke, Kristen Shaw. <laughs> Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you, Jesse David Fox. Why do you like this joke? Okay, I love this joke because it. I think this might have been my first joke, and I don't even really call it a joke. Yeah, it's a, a, it's a, it's a bit. Um, I had a dream of, about it. I just had a dream that I was on stage trying to perform and the birdcage was empty and then I was able to put it on stage in real life. And um, and, it, and I got to work, you know, it evolved from the phone to the to the note and then to the to the song. I, I don't know if I do this, I don't do the song in the special, but when I would perform it live before, I would sing, I got you, mm -hmm. I got you, babe, without the bird. Oh, so you just so, did half of it. Yeah, and then I would wait for... And it got and just get sadder and sadder. Um, so yeah, so I that's that's why I love I love it. So when did you have the first idea? When did you have that dream? And then when did you put it on its feet? Almost immediately. I don't remember when that joke. So the special happened. was two thousand nine. Okay, so I must have had that dream. I probably was doing it th at least probably about two years before. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I, I did it almost immediately because I was constantly at the beginning of my career uh, pu putting up whatever new material I could think of in the little, you know, clubs and open mics and stuff like that. So I, do, I, did, I did purchase a birdcage, <laughs> um, and that was a lot of money, <laughs> but I got it. I got the birdcage at the time. Yeah. Went you're to the like, pet store, got a birdcage. <laughs> you're like, I'm committed to this so much. That <sighs> Yeah, that is the thing when you pick a prop. That that bit actually for the what I love that bit so much. I tried to do it with a fish tank, and that didn't work so well. And then I thought it'd be funny to do it with the horse. Yes. So that I bought on on eBay. I got in when I was living in Brooklyn. I I was able to um, get my hands on a saddle, and that. I remember I t picked it up and I carried that saddle onto the subway because I just couldn't pay for cabs at the time. Dragged it all the way into the UCB underneath Gristides and did the bit. I remember the horse, the, so the horse leaves and there's a giant note under the horse. It just looks like a horse wrote it. <laughs> and I um, remember the audience's reaction to be not as enthusiastic as I wanted for the weight of the saddle. And so I, I I drug it home and never did that bit again until my one-hour special because I was like, I got this. Now I have the saddle in my bedroom, and every time people come over, they're like, ooh, Kiki. They all think it's a sex, <laughs> sex toy. Saddle. It is not. It's just it's just my albatross of comedy <laughs> props, and I'm not giving up on it. So do you still have the cage, too? Mm-hmm. 
I got a better cage when I did the special. I had a tiny little red cage, and I used that for the Andy Kaufman contest. And then, and, and also for probably the Aspen Comedy Festival, I probably did it there too. And then I got a big, a nice gold cage that was TV uh, ready. It was, it was the TV cage. Yes, it read <laughs> as bird cage. Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> You're like, got it, this is supposed to be a bird cage. Yeah. So you said that you had, so the dream was just that you would have a bird partner and the bird wasn't going to be there? Yeah, I just dreamt of an empty bird cage. <laughs> And I woke up and I was like, that's something. That's something. So and then, then, and then how did you add to it? Was it incrementally or is it? Um, yeah, I, I think I had most, I had the the note. I just had to really work, figure out like performance wise, like the reveal, like, oh, if it's covered and there's a re- the excitement to show your disappointment when you reveal it needs to be contrasted. So cover the birdcage, you know, like, and build it up. Oh my gosh, everyone will be so excited. <laughs> See the birds gone, and then yeah, and then I and then the always the note. I always had a note mm-hmm. that was tiny, like a bird wrote it. And then I and then I guess at some point I'm not sure when I I thought it'd be funny if if the bird calls me so I could have a conversation. Sure. You just have to realize like you do the bit once and like that was pretty short. And then you start <laughs> trying to think of other things to I, make it worthwhile carrying a bird cage across yeah. the Lower East Side. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the one-sided phone call part. I know from listening to interviews that you've, like, did research in, like, the history of comedy, different things. Uh Were you like, oh, I can do a classic one-sided phone call? Or do you just like, oh, I should have the bird call? Oh, yeah, just that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the latter. You're like, oh, I can reference... The what? oldest one-sided phone call. Oh, the, well, I don't think I saw any one-sided phone calls. I know they exist. There's some really funny one-sided phone call bits um, in movies. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I I think my my goal in the in the phone call was I wanted the audience to see, um, you know, the most um, private thing become public. Like, I guess it, if we're gonna get deep about it, too, I never. <laughs> I never like talking about myself. Like a lot of comedians will t- talk about their personal lives, and I and it's so powerful because it's real and it's engaging and it's embarrassing. Mm-hmm. I I never did that mostly because I found my personal life quite boring uh, for for the stage. Yeah. like you know, but you like your own personal life, but not yeah. I don't expect other. <laughs> I people did. To there was no way I could figure out how. To how it was interesting to an audience, but I but I did like that vulnerability. So I think I was trying to bring that vulnerability through the through the phone call and just show like just like trying to show face, but also mel- having a little meltdown on stage. And that led to my my overall love of just showing like little bombs on stage. Yeah, I was I was gonna ask what you, what do you like about bits not working or the I, you know the bits work, but the perception that something is not working i guess i guess what i like about it is because it's it's unexpected like everybody expects well that's not true people people go there because comedy can go either way you know that that is a little bit of the tintillation when you go see a live stand-up show is you're excited because you're you're pretty sure they're gonna make you laugh but there's i don't know to me there's always like this thing of like Oh, what if, what if, you know, how are they going to handle this if they, you know, if it doesn't work out? Because it's not, it is so raw. It's like, it's not TV. They can't, you know, put a laugh track in like you're out there. 
and I and I I found that part of of stand up really exciting, and so I guess I thought it would be fun to control that and mm-hmm. show it and make a bomb really funny. You've done this the bit before many times before you put it on television. What were audiences' reactions to it? Did it vary? Did you have to figure out how to set it up? Like, how do you you know because. You know, there's traditional understanding of, like, how an audience is supposed to react to comedy, but then you are not doing that sort of rhythm of how they should. So, yeah. like, what did you learn from doing those type of things for an audience? Um, I learned that they would they would follow along because it's because it's a story yeah. and, um, and it's relatable, I guess. Not the bird, but people, <laughs> people like letting you down. <laughs> um it was good. It was good because I was able to use that bit to do the Andy Kaufman contest, which um, really was the first. I think when I was starting out, it was kind of this uh, unstable thing of like, well, I'm not telling jokes. I'm doing these weird bits and I um, and I can't stop doing them and I'm I, I can't. I can't stop it, and yeah. I'm not. It's just coming out of me. So where do I put them? Because it's not going up. At, it's not going to work at Stand Up New York on the Upper West Side. So, so where does it go? And then, and then I found the Kaufman contest where that was like revered, and it was so nice to just sort of, I don't know, just be reminded like, oh, you're fine. And and everywhere that I did perform it too, it was great because it was like I was performing in these clubs. Uh, or not clubs, but rooms. you know the, the rooms. Yes, the rooms. rooms. Oh, the rooms of the <laughs> early oh, the aughts. collective unconscious, etc. You know, you mentioned Andy Kaufman, and actually, and you might actually know more than I in terms of, like, you know, did you have a a mission in some way? You're like, oh, I'm going to do this to the audience, or you're just kind of having whatever your instinct was leading you. Um, it, yeah, it was a bit of both. Kaufman was such a influence on me. Yeah. Um, that I and I and again I loved that he would turn turn the audience's expectations on it on their heads. Um, I I I thought that you know some of his work was was more my speed, and some of his work again was I think he the social experiment of having an audience get angry. <laughs> I mean that 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 was it really my bag. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so. So that that's what I was doing, but mo- but mostly I was just having these. Uh, the goal was was not was just doing these things that I wanted to see on stage that no one else was doing. I wanted to ask specifically how you wrote the parts that were written. I mean, like the ideas kind of came to you, but in terms of like actually what you said, did you write those out? Were you kind of just like putting yourself in the scenario and then you're riffing in them? I think usually when I do stand up bits, it turns I riff, and on and then I remember, and then whatever I just always remember. But my like if I look at my old comedy notebooks, I would be like, and I'd be like a birdcage, the bird's not in it, you know, and that would be it. Yeah. And then I would be like, thank God that I can remember <laughs> all of it, like because I remember Comedy Central wanted the script for the for the presents special, and I. I was like, oh, it's not written anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to like type it out. It was really felt gross, actually. Because yeah. when you look at it in paper, it sort of loses its life a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, this is very rigid and like planned. Yeah. And then the exact opposite of what you're trying to capture. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Each one, I guess, is different, but do you think of it as a character when you're conceiving it? In those days, um, 
I I was always a character, and when I would write the bits, I would say so it would always be in th- third person of mm-hmm. what the girl was doing, and my goal was that the girl was always at a stand up club where she didn't belong. <laughs> yeah, like the girl thinks she's at a poetry reading or whatever. She's always. <laughs> She's always in the wrong place trying to do the wrong thing for that venue in a mm. way. Um, and that was so helpful because it was very freeing. Again, because it wasn't about me. It was about this this character, which was me, but not me. Is that is that still the case? Or do you feel like you're now a little bit more like yourself? Yeah, now I have to be me. Like, I can't hide behind that anymore because now people know who I am, yeah. which is... Which is great. I mean, it would be really sad if they didn't at this point, <laughs> yeah. like fifteen years later. <laughs> but it, but it did change it, and and that's why I think, like, when you asked my favorite bits, all of a sudden it was like all of those. Where I was like, oh, all, I was just realized I was like, oh my gosh, I'm just mentioning yeah. everything that I started with, but that was like a more innocent time. Yeah, there is an innocence to that character. That is different than the one in this, the second special. There's an edge to that character. Um, it's a more sexual character, and that's, <laughs> that's like the bigger, the big difference, if anything. <laughs> and there's like a sweetness to and a naivety, like we're gonna, this is gonna work. And then it like constantly is not. <laughs> um, did that character allow you the 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 joke, the Kurt joke that starts it, which is like they want to do the special together, but I'm more famous than Kurt, so I just get to do it myself. <laughs> yeah. That's true. That was true. I, yeah. uh, Kurt and I ha- did want to do a special together. And that was a point where I was more famous from the show. Um, but the work that I was doing with Kurt, I was enjoying a lot more. Yeah. Um, like I, uh, the stand stand up wise. So I was getting pushed to do an hour of, of me, but I was using all my energy writing sketches with Kurt and they wouldn't let me, Kurt, me and Kurt have a, have a thing it was so annoying so i that's why i sort of made it an amount you know yeah yeah you got to get kurt involved yeah just be like well kurt's part of my solo <laughs> thing yeah in both specials there are jokes that involve animals uh i know you grew up with animals do you think that's part of what draws you to them yeah i think so <laughs> i i uh, always found animals um to be you know i would project uh total human qualities onto them always and and i found them really sad so i would feel sorry for my dog growing up because i'm like oh my god you're a dog that's so depressing because you'll never know what school is like and you can't sit at the dinner table and eat the same food as us like you're just like a second class citizen in the worst way and i just i hate that you're a dog i hate it so much so i i just feel sorry for all animals like in the in this really weird way Hey, they probably feel sorry for me. Yeah. They're, they're <laughs> empathetic in their way. They're like, he's, she seems like she always leaves the house. Yeah, I don't she's know why. like anxious a lot. She could only calm down with wine. <laughs> I was thinking about, to the listener, I was at a show that Kristen performed at last night. Um, and in Jesse general, David Fox is a, is a connoisseur of the live performing arts. He's um, a patron. But so I, I was at that show, and then I watched the half hour again. And I was thinking about how the audience laughs to you guys and compared to then, like, at the show, they, her and Kurt will perform bits and then, like, someone will do stand-up and it's, like, regular stand-up and then you guys would come back and do (laughs) a part of a play. And I was thinking about, as an audience member, you know, the Steve Martin idea of not giving an audience a clear um, time to laugh so then they're surprised themselves with their laughing. 
And, you know, what is that feeling for you as who's made a career of constantly almost essentially like not having a clear sense of when the laughing part starts? <laughs> People laugh. Otherwise, you would probably not do it. Yeah. What's that like? Yeah. Well, uh, you know what? Honestly, in some regard, it takes the pressure off in in um, expecting a laugh and then not getting it and like taking a deep breath and plying forward. It's just like, well, that was the joke and they didn't <laughs> like it. You know, no. Um, so, so that's one relief. But on the other hand, when you write this sort of material, if it really isn't working... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> then then you have no escape. Like there's no exit. Like there's no plan B. You can't just shift gears or go and go into a, another subject cuz you committed to doing this thing that's a little bit weird and you and if you drop it then you you failed. So so that, that is really scary. But when people are laughing in places that you uh when they start laughing and they're just in, enjoying it um, in ways that you expected but didn't, ex- you know, you wrote it but you didn't know for sure. Yeah, you know, it's just the best. Well, I, th- I think you're talking about how the difference between what Andy Kaufman did and what you try to do, like, he had the part where you like to have audiences have a bad time and be like, isn't it funny that you could not enjoy yourself? Where it does <laughs> seem like you want to make sure they're still enjoying themselves. Like, you can have, it could be pushing the boundaries but the goal is still to be having a fun time. Yeah, I mean, we all, I think it's clear that audiences can have a bad time. That's the one yes. place I think Andy might have went astray <laughs> a little bit. But he was he was doing crazy. I mean, he was ahead of his time. Yes. And all, all the, oh, he was, yeah, he was amazing. It's more the... Uh, <laughs> he was he, doing it on also, like, more high-profile venues. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, because it's you're more the... Uh, Getting milk and cookies after Carnegie Hall, then wrestling. I'm, I'm not for- even close to Carnegie <laughs> Hall. I'm I'm like doing it again for yes. 120 people, and we had to turn 10 away because <laughs> there's nowhere to go because the room is so tiny. <laughs> there's more than 10 turned away. I was- there was 20. Okay, you're right. There. Was <laughs> I'm 20. just saying, there's a lot of people turned away. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back with more Christian Shawl after this word from our sponsor. All right, it's time for our weekly mid-show crashing recap ad read. Episode 2, The Road. Pete is awakened on Artie Lang's couch by the sound of New York City. He does morning stuff and then goes to a deli buffet to slop-slop into a styrofoam container. The noise is gross. Even grosser is that he remembers he was mugged and doesn't have money to pay for his slop. Foodless, he returns to Artie's to watch a sad movie in hopes of getting a good cry going. Artie's like, that's not what a person should do, and invites him to open for him on The Road, the road. On the road, Artie's also like, oh yeah, Pete, I need you to make sure I don't do drugs because I'm a drug addict. And Pete's like, what are drugs? Oh yeah, drugs. And then he says, sure. In the green room, T.J. Miller is there, playing T.J. Miller, but a T.J. Miller that has not been friends with Pete for over a decade, like the real T.J. Miller, but still a T.J. Miller who was in Yogi Bear 3D. T.J. Miller, T.J. Miller, T.J. Miller. Pete opens the show and gets a total of two laughs, which is still an improvement from last week. After the show, Gina Gershon, playing a town woman, comes to the meet and greet to tell Artie she loves him and to take a photo and to ask if he'd like to party. Drug party. Pete, however, intercepts her and after some pepper spraying, finds himself at Gina Gershon's house. Now it's time for sex. But wait, Pete doesn't want to have sex because of a combination of his ex-wife and Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He thinks he's being nice. Gina Gershon's like, you're not being nice, you're being mean, and kicks him out. 
Back at the comedy club, Artie's gone, but TJ needs a ride back to the city that Pete can provide in exchange for, you guessed it, getting to crash on TJ's couch. And that was episode two. Turn in next week where there'll be another episode and another couch for young Pete Holmes to crash on. We are back with Kristen Shaw. Ooh, I really enunciated that one. I wanted to back up a little bit and just kind of establish context of the special and this joke. You know, where were you kind of in, in your career at that point as a live performer specifically? Because it was right after, it was right after Flight ended. Uh, but then kind of what was, where were you in your arc as a live Kristen Shaw? Yes, the, the the that first special it was, um, like the all it had all been developed before I got Flight of the Concords because they took it to the HBO Comedy Festival. That's how I got in, mm-hmm. and and from there I got I got Flight of the Concords from it, and then um, before season two of Flight of the Concords, I recorded that special. Mm-hmm. And then so at that point, how long have you been performing live? Oh, I've been performing live since college. So, I mean, probably officially since I, when I moved to New York in 2000. So, like, eight years. So, and we've talked about it before, which was uh, trying to establish where you performed. I was wondering if you can kind of flesh out the specific spaces that you performed in when you were starting out and, and what they meant to kind of shaping what your act ended up being. Oh, sure. that that, that They had a lot to do with it. Um, the... Well, when I first went to New York, I I was so depressed and sad because it was I couldn't get a job. And I mean, like a waiting job, like it was a tough time. Like I just walk in and I'd be like, I'd like a waiting job. And I guess they'd hear my voice and they'd be like, no, Um, (laughs) everywhere I went (laughs) and I was struggling. And then I stumbled into um, the show, eating it at the Luna Lounge. Um, and as soon as I walked in there, I was like, this is, this is, I'm supposed to be in New York. Like, this is right. And it was a total sign. And I went to eating it every Monday night. I stood in the back, talked to no one for about two years (laughs) and just took it all in. And in the meantime, when on Sunday night, I discovered, um, um, surf reality with Faceboy. And that was where you would go and everyone could perform. You would just put your name into a hat and he would draw the order and everyone would get eight minutes. And I think it was like $4 or something to just be in that room with mm-hmm. everybody. And, and then there was... And that was but that was more yeah. of a performance art space or more of a... Was it like kind you of... You could con- do stand-up, but you could also... There was a lot of people using it for whatever they needed at the time. Like, a, I felt like... There is a a, minor, a minority of like cases where people were using it almost as their therapy. Um, I like I saw a guy call his dad on his cell phone and ask him why he ruined his life, and his dad did not realize he was on speaker in front of an audience and um, different, just incredible things. I loved it. I I loved surf reality and and collective unconscious with Reverend Jen, and those were the two that I would really make sure that I would have new pieces ready to go for them every week. Like that was my goal was I was going to create a piece and I I knew I would have a stage that I could do it. So having that be the space that you go to, 
But you you always were like, I'm doing comedy. But having that being a space, do you think if you had a start, let's say those spaces didn't exist, but they're still like, you know, certain alternative spaces. Do you think how how big of a difference was it to have spaces that were also kind of open to performance art? Like to in terms of your comedy, to how big of a difference did that make? Oh, or how would you characterize that difference? I mean, it. I would say it was huge, and that I and then I felt like <laughs> totally free to do whatever I wanted. Yeah. I also graduated from Northwestern with a degree in performance studies, so I was coming from, I was coming on all firing on all cylinders in that in that <laughs> regard. But um, yeah, because I I remember. This uh, one time where I I was doing this crazy character who wore a wig and she would perform famous movies like Star Wars and Jaws um, without any uh, words. Like it was all in nonverbals. Um, and it somehow it was kind of a I, I did it at a at a show, the gong show. It was perfect for that, where I won, like, a George Foreman cooker. I was like, this is good. This is actually a good character. But, I mean, the problem is, is being in those worlds separated me from what what could have made me money. <laughs> because then the, I Conan had some scouts coming to Stand Up New York yeah. on the Upper West Side, and I, and I got a slot, and I went, and I remember I was, at that point, I was temping at a law firm as a, you know, paralegal. Anyone can do it. You know, have mm-hmm. degrees. The work is we get another podcast. <laughs> but um, I, I was working nights like our hours were crazy. But I was they let me go to do this showcase. And I did this. I came after people doing real stand up. Like, so I got divorced, you know, like real stand up about you know, their lives. Yeah. It was just like divorced. they were telling jokes as themselves and people were there and they understood the agreement and then I went up with this woman who wasn't speaking English or any language and she was acting out Star Wars and Jaws and people couldn't handle it they were just like no (laughs) it was like no and I bombed so hard and I crawled back to the law firm and I was just like I don't understand like I got a George Foreman grill at this Lower East Side Gone Show with all these weirdos, and <laughs> it's just not translating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I think it hurt. It helped. It hurt. <laughs> so then, so then, what was the process of translating it? Did you feel like it just keep on doing it, and then eventually it refined? Well, I just, I just couldn't do anything else. That's the problem. Like I couldn't. I wasn't gonna. T- I didn't know, and I still don't really. I still don't. I these days I can write some jokes about my life. I've had like personal things happen happening to me that I think might be actually a lot of people could relate to and could be really funny and I and I've thought about ways to turn them into things but it's still not quite there yet in a way that I think is interesting to listen to and watch. <gasps> so <laughs> I so now I want to do this other I just want to do weird things. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. So at the same time so I think I know you. You did like Chicago improv-y classes when you were in school. Yeah. Did you do New York improv sketch classes? I didn't because by the time I got to New York, I'd already done so much in Chicago. Um, Second City Conservatory, three classes there, plus um, I improv Olympic, four classes, and was on a team. So then I got to New York and I like looked at into the UCB. Yeah. And they were. 
they were very they didn't care um i also had done the a year at the or like one class at the groundlings in la they didn't care they're like well you have to start over it's just our program i'm like but, do you, but your teachers are the same teachers that uh, that came up with me at io like it's, come on just cut me a break like it's so much money like i spent <laughs> so much money i barely make any money so they didn't I think maybe I took level one anyways. And then I remember I was like, can I just try out for a team, please? Like, please, I have so much experience. And they're like, yeah, we're not. No, you have to take more to try out for a team. And and I so I cut ties with the UCB right there. I'm like, I can't. Never again. Have you yeah. ever spoken to them? No. I, well, I'm, I yeah. don't work with them. And yeah. I'm not. I put up a couple shows there, hot tub shows, but yeah. I couldn't. It was a bummer because the you know I'm friends with all the people and it's yeah. a tight community. But I was like, <laughs> don't I can't do this. Yeah. So then I went to the pit, and then at the pit, um, Ollie Fernagion was, well, this is crazy, but he didn't care that I wasn't going to take a pit class. He just let me perform. Yeah. He let me perform on the te- on the um, big black car team with Ellie Kemper. Oh wow. So I was on that team for like six or eight years. Oh, I, n- I did not know that. Yeah. Oh. So uh, I'm a pit person. You're a pit person. But I tried to be a UCB person. I do think the pit needs people repping it louder. So I'm happy to get that out there. So to fill in the, the audience, the show that I saw Kristen at last night was the 12th anniversary of Hot Tub. Yeah. <laughs> the show she's been doing for 12 <laughs> years with uh, Kurt Braunohler. What did that show mean for your voice you know and what does it mean now um right now these days the show is very much uh, i mean i would say first and foremost it's like oh i get to see my best friend once a week because these days you know he's about to have a baby any day now we're both married like you find the older you get the harder it is to hang like you did in your 20s and early 30s so in that regard, it's very special to me. Um, and then, and it's become a very important place for me to see comedians. And I don't know, I don't know if I'll ever get it. It's just to see all the talent that's out there, and it's just massive. Like um, Joel, Joel and Mandy, Mandy Johnson and Joel Mandelcore are producers, and they bring in the. They just have access to some of the the best talent that you wouldn't know about Mm -hmm. um up and comers and um a lot of the people coming through are are up and comers i would say they're not occasionally we'll get like some hot hot special i louis ck emailed me once and i got him for one and i i it was really out of nowhere (laughs) but it was very special to have him on the show just so i could say it today at this podcast um, <laughs> and I mean, I, cause I think that's a, I, I think we've gotten a, a visit from almost every favorite comedian of mine at least once. But, um, anyway, so now it's just, it's been great to see them. So then what was it, especially when you started, you know, what kind of, in so much as these different things have influenced, you know, this joke and this, that special in particular, what did that, how did that shape it? You know, what did having that show every week, having it be with Kurt? What did that change, if anything? Uh, from all over the years? Yeah, over the years, or even right at, you know, essentially even that first year. Like, when you really first started, what was the difference maker in that? Oh, when we first started Hot Tub, it was, 
it it sort of came about where I was like, okay, I you know I'm doing collective unconscious. I'm doing I'm doing surf reality. I'm doing all these weird shows that other people are hosting. I I, I need to have a show once a week. I need to have a show that I'm hosting that I can make sure that I do my stuff. And I thought it would be fun. My original idea was I would host it and all the people invited to the show would have to do material based on whatever the theme was. Mm -hmm. Like it's blue or it's, you know, fire, you know, or something like that. Um, And so when I approached the artistic director at the pit, he said, oh, well, someone else also wants to do a show here. And it was Kurt. Maybe you two could do a show together. And so that's how that happened. I didn't even really know him. Um, And so then from there, I actually developed a couple bits, like the Law & Order donut eating bit uh, got developed there. And that's what really, that that caught fire (laughs) in a way that led me to get the HBO Comedy Festival, which led me to the Fly of the Concords, which opened uh, all the doors to not have to wait tables. So... But but it was a place where where I could, you know, you wouldn't you knew that you had to be there no matter what, so you would have to write something new. And these days, working on Last Man on Earth was just like, which is a ton of hours. It's been more difficult to focus on writing the material. But now that we're on a hiatus, um, I think I will put my nose to the grindstone and and really try to 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 work on some new stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, so rewatching the the half hour, and also from last night, I was thinking about it. Reminded me of Pee Wee Herman's Funhouse or Playhouse, and I don't know why because it wasn't like you had a lot of things, but it's something about how it felt like a space. And I was wondering, it maybe you agree how much of your comedy and how much of work is creating a context for the type of thing that you're trying to do. Context. What does that mean? What is that? Like uh, to establish a universe. Okay. To which. This makes sense. What makes sense? Your joke that a person would go on stage and be like, comedy is oh. an empty birdcage. Oh, coffee. Okay. Not, none of it. Like, that. that's what was fun is that is that it would be out of context. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it, it didn't matter where it was. Um, but then it didn't always work. <laughs> <laughs> so you. that's interesting because you don't want... Part of you likes the part that they're not understanding. You don't mm-hmm. want it to be like... You know, you don't want to be like in front of a room and just playing the hits. Yeah, but also, I mean, audiences are if they if you do it well. I mean, they, I think it, they like it. They like that they're surprised. They like. I I mean, at least I do. Yeah. That being said, you're talking to a, a lady who has it. I, I'm not that seasoned, Jesse David Fox. Like, I'm not on the road like these other guys. <laughs> I mean, I have been. Ah, and then it's always like, well, I have. You I did have... open for the Concords and Dave Chappelle for thirty thousand yeah. people. But that's a whole nother. But they they seemed to get it beast. when you did that was for what Oddball. Oddball, yeah, and and then the Concords. I I went on tour with them once. I've I've heard you said you like you you never specifically wanted to be a stand up comedian, and I think in this special it doesn't feel like stand up. You have like a lapel mic or whatever the mic's called that the little circle mic. But then the next special you do have a. Microphone, microphone, I believe. I guess I have a question. How do you currently feel about being called this? You know, I just mm-hmm. said you're one of my favorite stand-up comedians. Mm-hmm. And then, though, that's nice because it's a compliment. I love that you said that. It's probably, You're probably one of the only people. <laughs> so, like, how, how do you feel about the idea of you being a stand-up comedian? You know, it's like stand-up comedian Christian Chal. Like, 
and how do you, and moving forward, how do you feel about that is what you are? You know, like a lot of comedians are like, you know, I do these things, but I'm a stand up at heart or whatever that means. What are where are you in the that is what I identify? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks. Um, <laughs> Took yeah. all interview and I finally got. No, I get because that's because a lot. I because I started stand up because I wanted to be an actress and nobody wanted to cast me in anything. Yeah. <laughs> so it was almost like the way I kind of broke in. So I, but I don't consider myself a stand up first. I think um, I. I, but I do consider myself a comedian. But as far as like a stand-up, I guess I just think that I took such a different road with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't do exactly what the people that I think work really hard at it do. That I don't feel I get to have the privilege of being called a stand-up. But, but I am a stand-up. And the other day I was doing Family Feud and... And Steve Harvey came out and he was like, oh, we got 10 stand-ups here. And then I was like, 11. And he like gave me a high five and he started like, that's the only thing that matters to me is my stand-up or whatever. And then afterwards, everybody was like, or this one of the people on my team was like, none of us are stand-ups. Like he didn't even research. And then I was like, Oh well, actually, I I am. And she's like, "Oh, you are." I'm like, "I'm like, yeah, I am. I actually really am. Like, I've been doing it. I have three specials. I have a show that's been going on for twelve years. I guess I really am. I guess yeah. I just had to say I have a stand up. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> that sound means it's the time for the laughing round. Okay, it's, it's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a laughing round. That's adorable. Hey, thanks. Uh, <laughs> traditional lightning round rules apply. Questions. Uh, quick. Uh, <laughs> quick questions. Uh, what is an influence or who is an influence on your comedy that is not a comedian? Oh. Oh. Oh, these are supposed to be fast. Well, well think, think hard. Okay. Um, okay, 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 okay. Oh yes, 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 yes. Uh, I would say um, Bjork, for sure. Um, I I don't. Whenever I was doing, when I was starting, because my my things were so weird, I would just com- not compare, but I would I would be like I would rationalize my shows by saying. This is like my album, like my Bjork album. It's just these weird pieces in their mind and they go together and it's fine. <laughs> what do you usually eat before shows? Do you eat before shows? I always eat before shows. And usually, uh, Kurt and I have a tradition of eating sushi before our show. That's nice. Mm-hmm. It's uh, light and it's protein. <laughs> if you can be any comedian for from any era for a night, you know, like you kind of get to be inside them yeah. uh, for a set, who would it be? Oh, 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 what a great question, Jesse David Fox. What a great question. Oh, and we can only pick one? Uh, your, your answer, you can pick I mean, there's want. so many I'd like to try. You could pick so three. Like you can pick three, but not more than three. I, would, I mean, because when I watch comedians at my show and I'm just like, what's it like being... <sighs> them and you want to be them i mean i would say of course steve martin 
I would love to have been there in his heyday because he was. But then I I say that, but then he was so um, particular about the time ti- yeah. ti- timing this is the Martin joke that I love uh that that it actually might seem like a headache like I was taking a math test <laughs> so then I'm trying to think of like someone who's who's just flowing in it like who's just flowing 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 in it that would be fun I mean I wouldn't it's almost like Kathy Griffin would be fun because you can tell she's just like and she's just reliving these moments and it's and it's enjoyable and you're there with her but I don't like being snarky about people. Um, but I do like her. Uh, gosh, who else? Who else is so fun to... Oh, you know, I, I was watching Pete Holmes' special the other day, and I really loved how... I don't know, he just has these moments where his, like, innocence, just his smiles, just, like, um, really fun. I, but nah, maybe... Oh, maybe like it would be fun to. The, oh, who else? I guess those are three good ones. Uh, this is such a fun question. This is such a fun question. Like Tig, like Tig, for example, is really fun because the way she plays with um, time yeah. is like how she. You know who Tig is reminds me of uh, Dave Chappelle. Oh, interesting. Because they like. Both walk out on stage, and it's just like they could give a fuck <gasps> if you like them or not. Like it's so like this is it, and it there's no pandering, zero pandering. It, it's just completely there. Like this is it, and Chappelle's a little like Tig's a little more guarded, but uh, but Chappelle is just like he takes his time, and it and it's so seductive. Isn't it? Yeah. Just to see someone on stage not rushing for the laugh, but just like, just, just wrapped around the whole audience, just wrapped around your finger in a in a, in a way that that few people can do. Mm-hmm. Anyways, all those people. Yeah. Do you remember the first thing you did that was funny? Maybe it was a joke, like ever before even you were a comedian. I mean, I did stuff at my church. Like plays and stuff that got a laugh always. Like I, I remember I was there was like a fashion show of like made up, you know, clothes, and I was the fashion shows, or maybe maybe they it was real clothes that the women had made themselves. I don't know why there was a fashion show, but I it was at my church, and I was the um, the speaker for it. You know, I was presenting the outfits, and and it went over really well. <laughs> Okay, that'll do it for this week's episode of Good One. You can hear Kristen Schaal on Bob's Burgers and see her in The Last Man on Earth, which comes back on Fox on March 5th. You can rent or download her stand-up specials on Amazon. Follow her on Twitter, at Kristen Schaal. That is Kristen Schaal with an E-D at the end. Jordan Bell is our producer. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on iTunes. Five stars, please. I am Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with Weird Al Yankovic.